Welcome back to Redefine You, a conversation for well-being, where we have open and honest conversations with friends of mine in the industry to explore their ownership to self and mental well-being journey. As when one shares their vulnerability in such a way, we're encouraged to look within. I'm your host, Haley Hasselhoff. I'm an actress, model, fashion and well-being editor, but most importantly, a body positive and mental health advocate. Redefine You is meant to encourage you and inspire you to look within and guide you to lead a life grounded in being you. All right, guys. So today's guest is an author, speaker, five board accredited life coach. You may know her from her hugely impactful campaign, Scarred Not Scared. She has inspired people all over the world with her personal story and is the author of the books, I'm I Ugly, and more recently, The Joy of Being Selfish. She also hosts her own successful podcast, In All Honesty. But most importantly, she is a very close friend of mine, and she's here today to share her story her wisdom and her heart with us i'm so excited to have you on the pod hi michelle elman what an intro that literally just like made my heart glow and i was like oh wait i have actually done quite a lot (laughs) honey you have to be able to have people in your life who can bring it back out for you and pull out your resume because you've done some amazing things in your life to bring you where you are today but i need to start off by just asking you i ask everybody on the pod if you were to check in with yourself right here, right now, what would you find? Honestly, probably exhaustion. I've had a bit of a like imbalancing um, point in my life where it's it feels like I'm mid-transition. So I believe you go through a lot of personal growth and then you go yeah. through the integration period. And that's when you're sort of sitting in yourself, trying to find your new self. And I almost use the analogy of like, you've got one foot on a lily pad and you've got another foot on a lily pad, but you're, you're not ready to make the jump yet. So like the lily pads are going further and further apart. You're almost <laughs> And it's like, okay, you need to make the jump now so that you can go into the new change and the new, um, I like to see life as a a series of levels. So it's almost like going into your upgrade. So it always feels a bit confusing. You feel like out of alignment during this period, but I know that it comes to an end and you find your feet again. Well, today we're speaking about the beauty of you. And I do want to start by just speaking a little bit more about your upbringing, where you're from. You've traveled so many different places. You've lived so many different lives. And I'm curious to know where it all began. Yeah, so I grew up in Hong Kong and I was there till I was about 11. But even then, I mean, my mum is a flight attendant. So her whole life was traveling around. I've been to more countries than I can count. Um, and I've always like moved around quite a lot. And from an early age, from literally the year I was born, I've been in and out of hospital having surgeries. Mm. And because of the medical technology at the time, and also because uh, my dad has actually lost a previous child, there was no medical technology in Hong Kong to figure out what was wrong with me when I was born. And so right. I was flying to LA every time I needed life-saving surgery to the only person who could figure out what was wrong with me at the time. And LA s- sounds like such a random place 
compared to Hong Kong, but it's because my godfather was out in LA and he was the one who found the doctor for me. Um, and that was pretty much my life. I then ended up going into boarding school when I was 11 in London. So that was mm-hmm. back and forth between London and Hong Kong and then still going to LA for surgeries. So um, that was pretty much my childhood was in and out of hospital until my last serious surgeries were when I was 19. And by that point, it was my 15th surgery. So altogether, mm-hmm. um, all those surgeries were as a result of having a brain tumor, a puncture intestine, obstructed bowels, a cyst in my brain and a condition called hydrocephalus. So a lot of the time when I list that, people are like, well, what started it all? And yeah. I just bad luck like some of it's connected some of it isn't but I I was born with a cyst I was born with a brain tumor I was born with hydrocephalus all those things just some people are unlucky with health and I think it's really important to emphasize that health isn't a hundred percent about personal responsibility because a lot of the time it's amen sister it's what's underlying that question though it's like oh well almost like what did you do to have that many so I didn't do anything I was just born without health whereas some people are and if you are you are really lucky and you shouldn't take that for granted because it is a privilege wow well I know that obviously you did say you, you underwent 15 different complex surgeries when you sort of look back at that period of your life you know what necessarily comes to mind um survival was yeah. probably the main word like I can't say I had many feelings around what was happening because you also don't have the language and you don't have the not intellect but the mental capacity at 11 years old to really Mm. be dealing with these really big issues and complicated feelings and so for the bulk of that time I didn't really process it and in fact like if you met me at 10 years old, 11 years old, you probably wouldn't notice I was any different to any other child because I worked mm. so hard over time to be normal. Like yeah. I, my goal was to fit in. And um, I guess the first like pivotal moment in my life was I wore a bikini for the first time when I was 10 years old and I came out mm. of the changing room. And because I'd had all these surgeries, but then everything else really in my life was normal apart from the fact that like, my friends would know, oh, Michelle disappears every now and then, but that's all they Mm. kind of knew. Um, It was when my scars were on show that people reacted to it. And it was these looks of shock and pity and horror. And it was particularly pity that I had an issue with, even from like a young child, I was a very proud person. And to a pity always comes with that energy of looking down on someone. Um, and it was kind of that moment that I realized like, oh, OK, so not only did my surgeries make me different, but my scars make me different. Mm-hmm. OK, let's never talk about it. Let's never show them, never like discuss them. And it was only really in university that things started changing around that, because even going the year before university, it was the idea of, OK, but if I want to have a relationship, a romantic relationship, I can't hide my scars anymore. Yeah. Like everything else, I don't have to wear a bikini. But like if I do want to be intimate with someone, I do have to take my top off. And that was the point yeah. when I had to start talking about not only my surgeries, but my scars with friends, because I didn't want the first conversation to be with a guy in my life. And so 18 was the first age I actually started talking about what I was going through and um, how it actually ended up coming out was 
in a drunken game in Freshers Week of uni. Um, <laughs> and it was a truth or dare. And someone dared me to take my top off. And that was the first time um, in a room full, full of all of my brand new friends. And it was a 10 minute conversation. It was a little bit awkward. And then everyone moved on as if it wasn't a big deal. And that was probably the best thing that could have happened to me because it was the fourth day of uni. And it meant that I went through the rest of that year not holding it as some deep, dark secret that I had to keep private. When you do date, though, I mean, do you feel like the, the uh, where's your level of comfort of speaking about your scars and your surgeries and so forth? Do you feel like it's the information that you tell them in the beginning to kind of see if they're uh, capable to open up that door with you? Or, or is it something that you wait uh, a couple times in? So I used to believe that you had to give up because my scars are hidden and you wouldn't notice them unless I was undressed. Um, or in a bikini, I thought I had to give a disclaimer before I took my top off. So especially in university, I used to do that thing of like, you're walking home with a guy, you know what's about to happen. And then I would like blurt out, oh, by the way, I should probably tell you, I've had 15 surgeries, a brain tumor, punctured intestine, a balance system, over it. and it was awkward. And I would do it drunk and it made <laughs> no sense. And then it was a conversation I had or maybe just the journey of like PTSD and everything I was going through, where I was just like, I don't think anyone cares. Like, and I started having more casual relationships. And that's what actually made me realize my body is my body. Everyone's body has their own thing. Why should I have to give some like warning sign before? Yeah. And it's also like was affecting me more because it's almost like I, what was hidden on my stomach was so horrific that I had to like pre-warn someone or give someone a trigger warning when actually like no most people don't care you're the one who's self-conscious about it if you didn't care so much about it they wouldn't care either and that has been my experience for the last seven years that usually two or three times after or like a few months into a relationship they'll be like it, it will just come up naturally because it is a part of my life and it'll usually be a story where I'll be talking about something. I'll be like, oh yeah, that happened while I was in hospital. And then it'll be like, oh, why were you in hospital? Mm. Like, oh, is that why you have scars? And it's quite a natural conversation now because it's not like, I feel like I have to push it out there very early on as a way, like almost in a way to be like, run away now before like <laughs> before you get in too deep when now it comes up as part of everyday conversation. And sometimes not even when my t- top has been off. It's just like, a part of like my daily life. And if the story comes up and it happens to be about hospital, I'll tell it and I won't hide it. Hey, your body is beautiful. You don't need no disclaimer. There's no need for you to be like, hey, this is what's going on. Absolutely. You take it off and they're like, oh, give it to me, baby. (laughs) So I mean, honestly, I actually am quite sad for my younger self for thinking that I need a disclaimer because I don't think that, I understand why I needed to at the time. And at the same time, I would like to tell other people you don't need to. And I have since learned that, but it took me a little bit longer to learn that, but that's okay. Cause I learned it in the end. Can I just go back for a second? Because like what I see is, uh, 
I did a lot of work with the Children's Hospital Los Angeles here in LA. And one of the things that we did was we raised over $160,000 for um, the teens room, which was for teens helping teens because living in and out of hospitals, I don't think enough people recognize how much is taken away from you and your development of going to prom or, you know, doing the little things in which you feel like you're connected to feeling normal again when you do get out of the hospital and before you go back in. And I'd be curious about your experience um, and what you would have wanted or needed during that period of time that maybe wasn't available to you in the healthcare system or in the hospitals that you were at? I think so much has, I'm not an old, I'm not old compared to the world. Like I'm 27 years old, but so much has changed in the last 20 years alone. And I have seen it. But at the time that I was in hospital, and again, that's like close to two decades ago, there was no therapy element there was no mental Mm. health element there was no even the physiotherapy side wasn't really there so everything was so focused on survival and then you leave hospital and it's done like you're okay now but actually not only mental health wise but like my recovery I I never really had any support for the physiotherapy side so Mm. it was me learning how to walk again by myself But if I could go back to that time, I think genuinely it would have just been someone telling me you are allowed to be upset. You're allowed to be angry, especially Mm. I don't know whether this is an American thing or an L.A. thing, but it was like my 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 personal experience was within the hospital was the be positive. You're so lucky to have the best medical care in the world. Be grateful for that. And I was like, it was only really once I became an adult that I was like. I was a child who'd had 13 surgeries before the age of 11. I was a child who had a brain tumor in her body for 11 years before anyone discovered it. And through those like 13 surgeries, no one found out I had a tumor. If you found out that day, you'd be angry too. But I just remember like I was never allowed to be angry or like sad about it because I mean, even when I cried, they would be like, don't cry. It's lowering your potassium levels. Like, Mm. so three months in hospital being bedridden and Mm. those potassium levels were what was the focus as opposed to like, just letting me get the emotion out of my body. And if I go even younger than that, so let's say like seven years old, my biggest memories were missing out on things like, I was quite a math geek um, and I had got to the final round of uh, like across the whole of Hong Kong of a math competition. And I was, the final, I was the final two schools and I got ill on that day and mm. I couldn't go and they won by default. And yeah. it was the most, I'm a very competitive person and it was the most frustrating thing lying in that bed that day being like, I have a headache right now. Yes, I am in physical pain, but I'm actually not putting any danger to myself by going. I will still be Mm. in pain, whether I'm lying in bed there or actually living my life. So I almost wish Mm. I had a little bit more control that I could have chosen what, as long as it wasn't putting my health in danger, it didn't matter whether I was in pain in my mind, because to an extent you get used to physical pain when you're so used to living that way anyway the part I cared about was missing out on my life. And the part I missed was being normal and being like, and not being excluded from the rest of my friendship group. 
Yeah. And then that was, I mean, that was one of our biggest reasons when we, we started Teens Helping Teen. I, I was 16 years old visiting the hospitals and we were trying to find ways. How do we give them a piece of normality? And I think now, hopefully, there has been a bit more of a shift, which I don't know. And I'd actually be so inclined to do more research on right now of if there are more iPods per room, you know, so that say that you did have your math, your math um, elite that you were doing, you could have done it virtually, you know, back then, maybe not. But now, now you can, right? So now there, like there might have been different opportunities that, that lend themselves to a, a, an open and more wide opportunity, no? The reason why I think there has been a shift is because the difference between that hospital stay when I was 11 versus when I was 19. Digital. When I was, well, it wasn't even that. It's the control aspect that they do just value mental health more. Um, so basically when I was 19, I was bedridden for six weeks. I was kept in hospital. And I shouldn't have less hospital, but I got so down and so depressed and didn't, I wasn't actually even coming up from under my cover. I couldn't leave the bed anyway, but mm-hmm. I was under my duvet and not coming out from under the, the duvet. And I think I had done that for like four days. My parents would come in. My sister came in, like everyone, my godmother came in, everyone just trying to be like, just come out from under the duvet. And I was like, I just want to be alone. And it got so bad that the doctor actually came in one day and was like, all, all I kept saying was, I want to go home. I just want to go home. And yes, that sounds really immature. But when you're six weeks, you haven't eaten, you haven't drunk water, you haven't left your bed. Um, and I knew medically and that wasn't safe and it wasn't feasible. But one day the doctor did come in and went, if you want to go home that badly, you can go home. It's going to be incredibly painful for you. And you are probably going to be back here in 24 hours. But if that's what you need to feel better right now, mm-hmm. right now you are making your recovery worse. And if you need to go home to just get a break from all of this, then we can make that happen. And I honestly like was over the moon, was like, I'll do it. Don't care how much pain I'm in. Um, and I did do it and I was allowed to do it. And yes, it was absolute agony. The moment I got home, I was kind of like, okay, I didn't really think through all of this. Like, for example, a hospital bed moves up and down. You getting into a real bed actually requires ab muscles. And I'd had like abdominal surgery. But and then the next day I did actually have to go back into hospital because I had been like throwing up the whole time. But I went back into hospital knowing it was my choice mm-hmm. and it sounds so stupid for anyone who hasn't been in that does situation. not sound stupid at all but it's a control element and it's even things like for example um I I hated the dignity aspect of my mum showering me because I was like I'm 19 years old I don't want my mum showering me I like would rather smell than do that and so my mum was having a really big issue with it she was like Michelle you're gross you need to shower you're going to make your health worse and the doctor walked in and the doctor was like it's not affecting her health if she wants to stink she can stink and it's just like the mentality change between that and 11 years old and yes some of the things I was doing were stupid when I was 19 but it was the first time I had doctors going no, if that's what she needs, that's what she needs. It's not affecting her health. So we're not going to like interrupt it. If it affects your health, we'll tell you something. Otherwise, do what you want to do or do what you need to do. Oh, I think a lot of it, what it sounds like is, you know, you didn't have control over where your health was going to head. And I think you were surprised so many times throughout your life that the one place that you did have control, you held on to it, you know, anywhere you could find that sense of control and that sense of this is Michelle being able to speak up for Michelle and saying that, that I can I know that I can get that instant validation or credit from it. If I stand still in that one place, um, you know, gave you a sense of probably just a, a whole 
told on what the world was was revolving around you and the stuff that necessarily you felt like you couldn't necessarily grab onto or or navigate the way that you wanted it to happen. I also think it's interesting going into hospital in the ways I've gone into hospital because there's no end date. And that's yeah. been with every single one of my hospitalizations. Yeah. It's like, it always tends to be a process of, okay, this surgery, and then you'll be able to leave hospital in a week. Of course, that yeah. week never comes. And then yeah. it's another surgery. And then it's another yeah. surgery. And suddenly it's three months living in hospital. And so it was it was so much being taken away from me, specifically the one at 19, and why I think I was like, I wanted to leave the hospital. I w- didn't want to shower, all of these things, was because I was finally having the best time in my life. I got worked around all my insecurities around my scars all my like surgeries had finally got okay with it finally was dating someone for the first time in my life and (laughs) had an amazing friendship group (laughs) and then I was like and now now is when you you want to like everything goes wrong and I even had a tattoo two months before being like let's draw the I had got a 13 on my foot because I was like 13 surgeries done no more (laughs) and so actually when they told me I needed a 14th surgery I remember saying I was like half under drugs and I said um like anesthetic not drugs um, but um I said to the doctor no I'm done I've got a tattoo and he was like that's not how it works and I was like oh, damn it that's what I hoped would happen well all I have to say is you are one strong cookie and I I just adore you so much in the mentality that you have towards all of this and I think it helps so many other people recognize that there is a normality in feeling the way that you felt going through that period of time and that feelings are validated, right? And maybe that is something that I don't know if it has shifted within the medical system and, you know, with kids going into hospital, but it is that thing of you have a chart of how to make, how to identify how you're feeling, but where's the actual other chart, right? Where's the, the lack of connection that you feel by not being able to be a normal kid that gets to go and play around in the field or gets to, you know, have that one-on-one relationship with your friends. And that's the only reason why I said before, I think digital has sort of shifted it just a little bit because you can kind of hopefully now not miss out on a few things that are in a bigger capacity. I noticed the technology change between 11 and 19 as well. So the difference yeah. was when I was 11, um, Hotmail was the only thing that kind of existed. Hotmail. And Hotmail used to delete your emails if you didn't check your email account after two weeks. What? And yeah, this was at the time. It, like, like I'm talking 2004. And okay. so by the time I checked my emails, I had no emails from my friends. Versus when I was 19, my friends used to um, put a laptop in the kitchen while they were all pre-drinking as if I was there. So like just oh. me I'm not drinking, but like was in my hospital bed and they would just leave this camera on 24 hours a day. So people would walk into the kitchen and like go and make themselves a cup of tea and be like, hi, Michelle. And I'll be like, hi. And like, <laughs> as if we're in the same room, but they left that, that, that. Laptop on for three months, like literally just in their kitchen. Ah, uh, they see that fuels my fire. But these yeah. are great tools and great things to be able to share to other people who are being going through it, been through it and, you know, are still there right now. And that's why you are such an inspiring woman, not only with all the work that you do after this, but the story that you've had and the tools that you can be able to give back to other people who are experiencing it for the first time. And you say it with such heart and kindness and care, because I do think the one thing about you is that you are true to who you are and your authenticity. You're true to who you are in a, in 
in a sense of knowing how to live in a state of acceptance. And I think if uh, you can live in a state of acceptance, it really showcases the power and the strength it has to be able to get you to your purpose. And that's exactly what it's done for you. I do want to talk, you know, we touched a little bit on, um, you know, how your mental health was challenged by your physical health. One of the things you did discuss with me previously is that you were diagnosed with PTSD only rightfully so after everything that you've been through. Um, and it was triggered in a moment at university. And I wanted to sort of dive in a little bit about what that was like for you. And was it really sort of an aha moment of, okay, this is the new challenge for me beyond my surgeries to then figure out how to navigate this moving forward? Yeah. So it was, um, I think, the fact that I started talking about my surgeries and my scars because of university, because I wanted to get into romantic relationships. And so 18 was the first time I started talking about it. Finally felt kind of okay with it, ended mm-hmm. up in hospital at 19. And then right out of that hospitalization in 19, I raced back to university against the doctor's orders, went straight back to university, still unable to walk, was in nightclubs holding my stitches. Like, in this, like this is just the stupid things I did at 19. But anyway, um, and probably went back a little bit too fast. And then it was the following year in my final year of uni that I was sat in a lecture hall and they were talking about, in the UK, it's called CAMS, but it's like the ch- ch- children care unit and psychologists going into... Um, hospital environments and how they're seeing patients who aren't primarily there for mental health reasons but physical health reasons and Mm -hmm. the first two reactions will be like I I, I'm not crazy because they're not there for mental health and number two why me and I heard those two phrases two things I said in hospital all the time because I was sent psychologists in hospital um and it just like reverberated in my ears and it was kind of like uh, the movie the movies in that like everything stopped around me like and all I could see in front of my eyes were like flashing pictures of every single memory I hadn't ever thought about um because my whole life was about go into hospital move on go into hospital move on and like I even my parents to an extent found it strange they were like you've never cried about it you've never been sad about it and I think it's because there was so much pressure to be like a survivor to be an inspiration Mm -hmm. and I knew how much pain it was causing my parents seeing watching them especially my dad who'd already lost the child due to medical stuff that I didn't want to be the reason they were in more pain by watching me cry or whatever it was um And so it was after that lecture hall, I like raced home and I just remember sitting in that lecture hall and the lecturer caught my eye, saw that I was like hysterically crying. Um, And she'd said like earlier in the lecture series, some of the things we're talking about can be triggering. So if you ever need to leave, then please leave the lecture hall. But I was sat next to like my best guy friend and I didn't want him to know that I was crying. So I sat there the whole lecture, like being like, no one can tell I'm crying. And the moment I like could get out, I because I had to get out of the whole row. Um, yeah. The moment I could get out, I ran home. And what then happened was I, I genuinely cried every day for close to three months and stopped going to all lectures. I even stopped going to the supermarket. My friends had to go get me like whatever I needed from the supermarket. I didn't leave my room. Um, And it was that guy friend who was like, I haven't seen you in a lecture in three months. Like what's wrong? I need to talk to you. Like, tell me what's going on. 
And Mm. at this point, I was starting to experience hallucinations and I was seeing like things at night and seeing people in my room. I was like dreaming about being cut open, being awake Mm. during surgeries. Um, And it was in the middle of the day, I heard someone calling my name and it was the first time I heard a voice. And I started freaking out and was like, oh my God, first it was visual hallucinations. Now it's auditory hallucinations. Obviously I'm a psychology student in my final year. I know all these symptoms. Um, and I'm like, I need, I, I don't know what to do. It wasn't an auditory hallucination. It was that friend knocking on my door. But when I, I, it took me like 10 minutes to realize it was an actual voice. And when I opened the door, I like burst out crying. It was like, you can't do that. You don't just turn up to someone's house and start calling their name. And obviously he's like, I've not seen you in three months. Like what is wrong? And he was the person who was like, Michelle, you need to get some help. Like you need to go. And so I went to therapy and it was probably the hardest thing I ever had to do. I left my keys at home because I knew that if I took my keys, I would quit like halfway there. Um, And it helped for about four months. Like it was the cathartic, like finally telling someone my story, talking about it. But then there was kind of like a wall and it came with this saying where I asked her, okay, like I understand I have PTSD, which took me about four months to get because when I first was told I had PTSD, I said, oh no, that's for rape victims and um, war veterans. That's not for me. I only went through a few surgeries and that's the way I saw it. Like not a big deal. Like people go through surgeries all the time. People are absolutely fine. Like who am I to complain? And it was it took four months to get my head around that. But then once I did have my head around it, I said like, okay, but what now? Like the day before all of this happened, I was happy. How do I go back to being happy? And she said, which is now an indication of that therapist and not therapy in general, but I didn't know Mm -hmm. that at the time. (laughs) He said like, this is your life now. You learn how to manage it. Mm. And it was that like, that's just not who I am as a person. That is not Mm. my mentality. And it was that soul crushing thing of like, I'm 20 years old right now. Are you telling me my life is now hallucinations, flashbacks and crying every day? Because like, I refuse to accept that. So I quit therapy and like almost lived in a state of denial for about four months and realized, oh wait, this doesn't work either. Um, And then I started looking for other approaches and hypnotherapy I had been to hypnotherapy a few times and I was like you know what I'll do hypnotherapy for this and I happened to find this hypnotherapy trauma-based hypnotherapy called havening and it was life-changing an hour and 10 minutes I walked in hysterically crying all day every day and walked out and could talk about my surgeries without a single tear and that was what and so whatever he was trained in I basically went out of the session and I went, whatever you're trained in, I want to get trained in because that's yeah. what works for me. And this is the thing. I think therapy works for people. I think therapy works for some people, but if you're going to be a therapist, you have to believe in what works for you. And so mm-hmm. whatever this was, it worked for me. And that's what got me into life coaching. And um and I I I still have a life coach to this day. So I've had a life coach for the last uh seven years and it's been a lot of inner child work it's been a lot of trauma work um and that's what's really I mean I I I actually say I I had PTSD I say it in the past tense I don't think it's an everyday part of my life anymore and um I wouldn't say I have the symptoms of it anymore 
I'm like, sign me up for all of it. It sounds fantastic. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I love, I, I mean, heaving. I'm like, where can I go? I want to go to heaving. <laughs> I think, havening, you know, havening. Havening. I'm sorry. I'm see, I'm learning something new here, people. Havening. But I, but, so are you now a master in havening? Uh, so I actually ironically didn't get trained in havening, but I am a master hypnotherapist, which is what okay. it's based on. Um, Amazing. I'm a master NLP practitioner and I'm a master timeline therapist and a master NLP coach as well. I just love you. I mean, I think that, you know, we speak a little bit about your your medical trauma and I think within your medical trauma probably induced your PTSD at that time. Do you still feel that you get triggered at certain periods in your life from your medical trauma? No. So I believe I wouldn't have had PTSD if someone at 11 years old or seven years old had told me I could cry. And I think mm. if told me I could be angry, I think my PTSD, and I won't speak for any, any other person or any other models of thinking, because I think some psychologists would disagree with this. But my personal experience of PTSD is that it, the symptoms only got more and more severe because I was ignoring them. There mm-hmm. were signs at 11 that I wasn't okay. Things like I used to, yell, like I lived in a boarding school and I there were moments in that boarding school where I used to yell at people quite a lot. I think that was anger around my surgeries coming out as a projection, but like their solution at the time was, okay, let's put her into squash. I became yeah. very good at squash, but it didn't feel <laughs> the anger. Like the anger was still there. Yeah. And so it, the PTSD allowed me for the first time to have all the emotions. The problem is it's like more than a decade's worth of emotions. So when it comes out, it comes up jumbled in like a mess that you're trying to sort out and you can't deal with one emotion at the time. You're dealing with like this whole complicated mess. And then I was invalidating what I was feeling by continuously saying, but it happened 10 years ago, but it happened 10 years ago when it doesn't matter when it happened. It matters now because I think the reason why it came up at 20 was because it was the first time in my life I felt safe. And I think I never felt safe in my boarding school. I felt safe in university. I felt safe in that friendship group. And then the trigger just happened to be that psychology lecture. You know, it's amazing because it brings you back to your purpose and it brings you back to even what we're speaking about here today. And it's all about validating your emotions and showcasing that there's so much strength in being vulnerable. And then actually, when you start to unveil your vulnerability, the people around you will do the same. And it allows you to have that safe space from the instant that you meet that person, rather than it being something that you feel like a party friend that has to turn into your safe space, because that transition sometimes can be quite hard, right? So it's about making friendships and building the relationships from the start where you already feel you've got a safe space to be able to build off of. And that's the beauty of, I think, our relationship as well. Being in the same curve industry, we're encouraged to always be vulnerable with one another about our struggles with our body image and our self-image. All of us have different stories, but we connect back to this idea of acceptance and love for who we are and our authenticity. You have turned you know, your beautiful pain that you have experienced into something that can change change the world with people's point of view towards their scars, towards their beauty marks, towards their bodies. And I always look at you and say, thank you. Thank you for the work that you do. But most importantly, thank you for your freaking mind. I mean, you're just so brilliant. And to know that you went through all of that, I can only see you literally having those moments, sticking up for yourself, holding your ground, Michelle. I know who you are. I'm not going to shower. I'm just not going to do it. So if you want to watch me walk around here, then 
go on for the show because this chick has made up her mind. And <laughs> as much as you want to say that was stupid, I look back at it with a smile on my face because that's you knowing what you needed, knowing what you wanted to make you feel like you were grounded in your voice. And that is what you have then turned into an amazing, amazing career to help other women do the same. So you should actually be never saying that's stupid. And you should always be applauding <laughs> yourself on the back and saying, I have a voice. I know how to use it. And I'm here to encourage other women to do the same. I do want to, we've, we've touched a bit on why you started Scarred Not Scared and how that's become such an amazing, honest community, but let's tap back into the bigger thing of, of, of how you were able to turn your life experience into really connecting to the masses, which was through body image, right? So, which is through, you've had a, a, you know, a unique experience with your body image and your scars. Um, but coincidentally enough, actually, we were, we were, you know, testing for a show together and yeah. that's when me and you connected. Cause I have a scar about on my scar. body. Yeah. I think yeah, that's actually the first time we properly spoke. We, we I think that was probably the first time where you were like, Oh, okay. Actually, I think Haley's okay. <laughs> no, that is not true. But it is the first <laughs> conversation we had together. Like I, I do remember. I also remember you wearing a gorgeous green coat that I was uh, like, you look amazing. You had this love you. Amazing outfit. I remember <laughs> Outfit, which means it meant a lot to me that conversation um but yeah it I think it essentially comes down to once you embrace your story you can help others yeah and it was this frustration that seeing the body positive community talk about like all bodies are good bodies but I still didn't see one that looks like mine to be mm. fair my body is really bloody unique uh, gorgeous mean, your your my your bikini picture doesn't go viral across the world with no platform if you don't have a unique body and I almost joke that like the only reason my picture went viral is because my body is so different but it was also such an untapped conversation and that was the frustration I felt when I was growing up with scars alone was the fact that Think about how many people have surgeries every single day and therefore how many people have surgery scars. Yet I never saw anyone with a surgery scar in my life until I was 21, until after my campaign. And so it was this frustration of like, oh my God, I had to do all this hard work to finally accept my scars and love my body. But it shouldn't have been that such hard work. Mm-hmm. Like that, the hard work should have been surviving the bloody surgeries. But the fact that body image was such a big hurdle for me to overcome, I was like, I'm confident. I'm fine with it now. Well, why not me? Like, why can't I be the person? I can sit here and bitch and complain about the fact that no one's including me, or I can make sure other people are included in this movement too. And so that's ultimately where Scar Not Scared came down to. And for me, I wanted to make it a big conversation and I'm glad it did go viral because what I always said about Scar Not Scared is it's actually not really about the people who have scars because every single person who has a scar has a story of someone who doesn't have scars body shaming them or making a comment on their scar or staring at their scar. And that's what creates the insecurity. Before that moment where I wore a bikini at 10 years old, I didn't know my scars were a bad thing. Yes, I could see the difference. I didn't know the difference was a bad thing until someone looked at me with pity. And so that was the part that needed to change. And I truly believe it has changed. When I first was posting pictures of scars, the response would very much be like, Ew, gross. I'm really sorry you had to go through that, but why do you have to talk about it? Why do we have to see it? Whereas mm. now people are very much like, wow, that's so brave. It's give so me, brave. give me. They're like, give me, give me, Michelle. You look like a sexy hot bomb. <laughs> give me, give me. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what we want. 
That's what I thought. Well, okay. So yeah, we, we touched on obviously the fact that we, we met because I have a, a scar from an injury, but you know, very little, but it um, for myself, because I don't speak about it often, there was that sort of correlation for us to have that conversation when it was presented, when somebody was speaking to both of us. Um, I do want to talk about just the, the body image world in general, because you know, it so much just like myself. And I want to know if you feel like your body is ever challenged when your mental health is down. So say you're having, you know, an anxious day. Do you feel like your body becomes the first thing um, to start with the self-judgment? And I only ask this because I know that for myself, even being somebody who really does live by my body, doesn't define me, I define me. I can see myself sometimes in different surroundings, always being the first thing to start to be judged. And, um, you know, I was single for six years, a lot of which I look back in that period of time going like I was blaming my my body for the lack of love that I was getting, but it was really the lack of the love that I had towards my self-worth. That was the reason why I was actually putting up a barrier to let people in the way that I needed them to love me. Oh, absolutely. I believe that the body is the biggest excuse that someone uses. So if you're feeling bad about something, you will blame your body. You will say it's because you're too ugly. It's because you're too fat. Actually, it's not about that. So the greatest thing I ever learned how to do is go, okay, what is this really about? And often it's never about your body. Absolutely never. And so it's always, people almost don't believe me when I say I don't have bad body image days anymore, but it's because I don't think about my body. I don't like spend energy. I think sometimes the end result of body confidence is seen as like you looking in a mirror and being like, oh my God, I'm fabulous today. It's not that. It's the fact that I leave the house without checking whether I've like brushed my hair. Like I don't think about my body anymore. Like I don't care how I look like when I like, even when I've gone on a date, I've gone on a date makeup free because I just don't care. I'm like, you're going to see me makeup free at some point. Why not the first date? Like it's just my mentality around it. But it, yeah, it's, it, it, it gets used as an excuse because what ultimately happens is you say, let's say, oh, I don't think I'm good enough to apply to that job. Maybe when I lose weight. OK, now you've pushed that goal away for six Always. Like, but then that's a six month waiting until you actually apply for that job. But actually, if you were honest with yourself in that moment, is it truly that? Is it truly your appearance or is it because you're scared? Great. Then be honest with yourself and just admit that it's fear. Then we can work with that. We can work with the truth. What we can't work with is you blaming on your body when your body is trying to do the best it can for you. Well, I think it's just mostly about too, like you are worthy just as you are right here, right now. And I think when you start to identify with just that, you say, okay, even if I have things that I have aspirations to change, either that be my physical attributes or what's happening inside, you need to love the pieces of you now to get to where you want to be tomorrow. So stop looking in the mirror and looking at it as I'm going to hate myself, hate myself until I love myself. It's no, I'm going to love myself, love myself, love myself, and then love myself even more. Like it's getting, you know, has to be to that place. And I agree with you. I've definitely come to a place in my life. I mean, I, I love getting dolled up then, you know, I, I I'm for my, for myself. I just, it's just who I am. I just love makeup. I love playing. I love it all. Um, 
but I know that it's for me and it's not for anybody else. And I also think that it just within that, no matter what, I have a very free opportunity with my style because I'm not thinking about what's making me look thin or what's making me look a specific way. I'm just looking at it as, is that a cool outfit? Do I feel great in it? Yes. Perfect. Put it on, go out the door, you know? And I think there's that mentality there that shows up in my life that I recognize and go, my body truthfully does not define me. I define me and the things that I love help me along the way, like fashion and beauty and makeup and all these things. Cause they're just enjoyable. Um, but I do want to speak to you about just the curve community in general, because I think it's a really interesting world that we've met each other through. Um, you know, there is, of course, competitiveness and judgment that can happen between like-minded leaders that shows up. It's something we don't speak about often because I think a lot of people think that in um, every niche community that we're all very supportive of each other and we want the best, which is true. We both are. We're both very supportive yes. people. We know that there's so so many different voices to lend to one bigger movement and that every voice needs to be able to be heard to actually make change happen and to touch one person that will relate to that specific story of how it is told. So why do you think it is important to share that even though we all have similar end goals to encourage others to live an authentic self-love lifestyle, that sometimes there still is people in the community that can be um, a bit judgmental towards the fact that we all have a place for a like-minded goal? Specifically when it comes to the body positive or curve community, I think there are a number of people, and I'm going to be very honest because I don't know how to be any other way. I think you should. Um, this is why I'm asking you this question. No one asks it. Well, but let's I, get real. <laughs> so I came into Instagram already healed with my body confidence issues. And I believe that's the way it should be. Because the problem is when you come online and you've not healed your body insecurity, what happens is you replace your insecurity with the external validation that a platform like Instagram gives you. The right. problem is the majority of uh, people who preach body confidence are not actually living that way offline. And therefore it's this facade. And so what happens is when they meet someone who like has the perception of having more confidence than them, it becomes a threat because if they're so reliant on their insecurity not resurfacing because of the external validation, mm -hmm it's a threat to take away the one thing that their self-esteem is built on. And so if you are so reliant on getting that 100 comments a day, those 20,000 likes, whatever it is on each of your pictures, and that disappears, you've based your self-esteem on a fra fragile landscape. And so therefore, anyone who is close to your sphere of work is seen as a threat. And that's why I believe it, I don't know more so than other communities. I think every community has its own thing, but I personally believe within our community, that's what it is. It's the fact that because I genuinely walk around and it, it happens a lot on photo shoots, to be honest, I've seen it. I don't know about your photo shoots, but my photo shoots, it's when like, it's very obvious. I'm quite confident. Sometimes I like, you know, in modeling shoots, sometimes you change in the middle of the room, like, and I don't really care. And I'm like, oh, it's fine. Always. I'm like a nudie. All over the place. I'm not doing it for anyone else. I'm just doing it for efficiency or ease. And sometimes yeah. <laughs> when I do things like that, I guess it comes across as 
threatening to another person who doesn't feel they have the confidence to do that or feels like I'm doing it to put on a show, which I really am not. I'm just like trying to get from A to B and get this done as fast as possible. But it's, I think that's what it is. It's essentially people who aren't self-aware enough to recognize that instead of seeing everyone else in the community as threats, it's that they haven't worked on themselves enough. But I don't want to just talk about the negative thing because I must say, like, my, I have two, three really good best friends from the very, very beginning of Instagram, like seven years ago. And those were actually the first people who taught me how to celebrate it. So the only reason I am how I am now is because of those women where they, they cheered me up. They were my biggest cheerleaders in a way that to be honest, I wasn't very used to. I grew up in a very bitchy boarding school where competition. So like I was one of those women who used to always be like, oh, women are catty and like everyone's competition. And those three women within our community were actually the ones who taught me that it could be a different way. And that's why I then changed the way I was. And I was like, you know what? These people are always going to exist in our community, but I'm going to open be the leader. Heart. Yeah, be, you, the you leader be the leader for and kindness. Because- For me, it was also changing. Like, so I'm very open about my fees for anyone who's in the industry now, because I could, if I, I found if I was open about it, I was attracting people who are open. And I genuinely think it's the only reason I became friends with people like you, because my solution was either to be completely shut down or to be so open hearted that I was getting my heart trampled on all the time in this community. And then I was like, no, just stop with the fast friendships let friendships grow at its normal pace. You can then see see where you're at and then you can build a little bit more, see where you're at. And that's why now I do have very healthy friendships in the community and I just kind of ignore the rest of the people in the community. Well, I have to say, like, that's why I think me and you uh, have gravitated towards each other because we both were very open. And I think that sometimes, uh, you know, throughout my years of of being in this industry there has been moments where I'm such a little lover and I'm just like hi I'm like let's be friends and there's a lot of people who I think um necessarily haven't been so welcoming and between me and you I think we we hit it off and I was so grateful for it because there's been moments and events and things that we all have to attend and it can be challenging at times to feel like you are the black sheep that no one wants to speak to when you're actually really so sweet and I just want to be friends with everyone. I'm just getting a flashback of like one dinner where we were sat next to each other and I was like oh my god this room is so loud Haley. I can't hear myself think and you're like oh my god me too um, but we, we found each other in that like dinner party and so actually I had someone to talk to at that Yeah, but I think dread being in a room like that. Well, you just want to feel welcomed. And I think at the end of the day, it's it's just killing it with kindness because we, I personally will always welcome my hand to anybody. And I just think that we all have such a beautiful voice to be heard in this, in this community and whether their story is, um, I don't know people's personal stories. I don't know if what they're showing on their socials is different to what they are on the back end because I don't know people that that well that personally. But what I will say is that I just 
I just hope that everybody understands that in any community that you are in, if you are experiencing a sense of competitiveness because you are living your authentic truth to always just remember to stay true to who you are, stay true to your morals and kindness is the best medicine and the only way for yourself to get through it and for the only way for another person to really be open to the energy that you are trying to project forward. Um, So that is what we will say on that. Um, But I will say, you know, you are very strong willed. You have been a great leading force to show how you've put your passion to purpose. You speak up for the things that you believe in, that you value. Where do you really think that the strength behind your voice came from? Because yes, we've had a very small conversation today, but if anybody else wants to listen to the wonderful conversations that Michelle has done, you speak on so many vast topics from such an intellectual place. And I'm so curious to know where does that groundedness within that opinion come from? Because sometimes that can be quite daunting to put yourself on a platform like that. Um, But you do it with such grace and go, you know, hey, here's here's an opportunity to speak about it. You're like, I'm in it. I'm ready. I'm ready. And I'm like, all right, she's fucking ready. Where does that come from? You know what? It wasn't the fact I never had that in me. It was actually my journey was more figuring out how to channel it in the right way. Because I think there was always an aspect of that in me. So for example, the me not sharing at 19 years old, it's the same piece of me who like speaks out, except now I'm using it in a productive way and I know how to channel it and I know how Mm -hmm. to rein it in and I know when it's appropriate to use it. But I genuinely believe once you remove all the shame and all the silence and all the stigma around it, we all have that fire within us. And it's about finding what you like, what lights you up. Like when you've ever, I had a really good day like two weeks ago and I'm just quite an analytical person. So when I have a really good day, I sit down and go, okay, what made that day more amazing? Okay, how can I make more days like that? And that's how Mm -hmm. you build a more fulfilling life. And so I've always had an interest about human behavior. And that's essentially what I believe underpins every part of the conversations I talk about, whether it's boundaries or body positivity. It's about knowing your power. And ultimately, I think my resilience and my strength and my drive comes from the fact that I have a very emotional realization that we have only so much time on this earth. And it's such a cliche, but when you think you're going to die at 19 years old and you're lying in a hospital bed, like that was a pivotal moment. I went into hospital at 11 and I came out scared of life, like so worried to go back into hospital. When I went into hospital when I was 19, it was like everything reversed. Like all I had been scared of life for 18, for eight years, not done any anything that I loved because I just wanted to make sure I never went into hospital and I ended up in hospital anyway. So then like, I mean, uh, when I went into hospital when I was 19, I then came out of hospital and I literally called it my YOLO summer where I did every single thing that scared me, even if I didn't want to do it. Like I hate roller coasters, but I went on it twice, not once because once you can say it was like a fluke. So I went on it twice, decided after two times on a roller coaster, I went, no, I still hate roller coasters. We're not doing that again. But I did everything that I wanted to do because it was this like, I don't know how to describe it to make someone realize it in a way that I realized it without going through the pain I went through. But trust me, when you're lying in a hospital bed full of regrets and you genuinely think you're going to die, there is something in you that just like mourns and grieves for every single moment in your life where you thought you weren't good enough to do that or to do this. Like if your biggest fear is fear, 
Like fear is fine, but regrets, oh, that's a pain you will never be able to forget. And that's what drives me. Which sort of brings me to one of my last questions. You know, obviously you've just made the most beautiful book, The Joy of Being Selfish. It talks about how to necessarily live a life, a YOLO-based life, but living (laughs) it in a way in which you have the driver's seat, right? And in order to do that, boundaries are a really big way for making people feel like they are able to take control of the things that surround them that don't serve them, right? Things that surround you, but don't serve you. So how would you say that came about for you? What are three top boundaries that are in your life personally that possibly somebody can maybe identify with right here, right now? So I think it changed for me when I realized that I finally was confident in my body. I finally loved myself, but I was surrounded by people who treated me like crap and Mm. made me feel unlovable. And so it was almost like pushing a rock up a hill where you're like, well, why, why is this hill so steep? Oh, because everyone in my life is making this more difficult journey than it needs to be. Mm. And So it was a very brutal wake up call because it was a realization about not only my friends, but my boyfriend at the time. And that's when I was like, I need to start picking people who treat me with respect. And the respect is the respect is the word I come back to because you don't have to yeah. like, you don't have to like someone. It doesn't matter who it is, but you need to respect people. And I think everyone gets your respect before they until they do something that removes that. But that's where I start with everyone. And essentially, what I believe boundaries are are they teach the world how to treat you. It's the line between who you are and who the world wants you to be. And so when you have boundaries in place, not only is it telling people people what is and isn't acceptable about your treatment but your identity grows stronger you know who you are because you're not so influenced by the world around you you can walk into a room someone can do something and you can go that doesn't work for me like Mm -hmm. and it can be something as small as like booking a dinner and like then trying to book it in a time or like you sending someone an email at like 10 o'clock at night those time things are really important because I believe time is also respect. Time is your most precious commodity. And like, that is what is one of the aspects. Um, How people talk to me is a really big aspect. Um, And yeah, it's, it's so ingrained in like in me now that I also think it's how you receive other people's boundaries. So that would probably be the third thing. It's like, I don't believe you can have good boundaries if you don't respect other people's. And I used to be a massive culprit for that, especially if I wanted to go out on a night out and no one would come with me. I would be that person being like, oh, come on, like just one night out. Oh, you're being boring. You've got exams tomorrow. Oh no, you can study for exams later. Like that's not respecting someone's boundary when they told you no the first time drop it. There was a no for a reason. And so learning that myself was a big learning curve. Well, amazing. And I think the boundaries are so, so, so important. And until we had our first conversation about boundaries a while ago, when the book released, um, you know, I think that I wasn't identifying the need for boundaries because I don't feel like I was a yes person. I definitely know that I'm not a yes person, but I think boundaries come in different forms. So what is a boundary towards an emotion that's necessarily being projected on you because of somebody else's feelings towards your life, right? So there's different ways in which a boundary can fit within your life. And it's about figuring out why you have those boundaries to actually help you when a trigger arises when a flare-up is about to come in um you know if a certain person calls me before a uh live show sometimes i'm like 
boundary, not gonna answer. And sometime before I'd be like, I'm gonna answer it even if I've got 30 seconds, I'm gonna make sure everything, you know, okay. And I'm learning as it comes to not. <laughs> um, well, which I say can in the book, be hard. <laughs> I, I say in the book, just because someone's calling doesn't mean you have to pick up. Like, it, and that's actually a concept for life. And it's not just about phone calls. Like if someone sends you an email, doesn't mean you have to reply because someone invites you, doesn't mean you have to go. Like all of these things, we almost do it out of politeness, especially women. And you just don't have to, you get freedom, you get choice and you're an adult. So you get to make your own decisions. That is key. Right, so as I leave every episode, I need to ask you a few simple questions that tap into what makes you, you. We ever so often speak about our personalized toolbox, how it lends to our emotional journey. What served you from your last experience with a flare up or a challenging moment? I am doing a lot of what I call somatic processing. So some people will call it different things. Um, in the spiritual world, they called it embodiment. And some people would just call it mindfulness and meditation. But it's essentially where I sit still and I scan my body for anything I'm feeling at the moment. So I mm-hmm. might find like there's some sadness in my heart or some like anger in my stomach. Um, and what happens is you sit with it, you put your attention on it, you breathe into it. And if you, if it feels like an urge to make a sound, then I make a sound, um, and get that energy out of my body. And Mm -hmm. what usually happens is the more attention you put on it, especially if it's like a supposedly negative emotion is it will actually get more painful and it might even move. So it might move from your heart to your throat. It might move from your heart to, I get pins and needles quite a lot. So like it might move from my heart to my legs and I'll suddenly feel like I want to shake out my legs. And so I do that, but that's what I believe is feeling your feelings. And it's something that I am currently doing daily because I'm going through so much, as I said in the beginning, like so many changes at the moment. I'm in that integration period after you've gone through like a lot of learning. And so it is a, at the moment, it's five minutes in the morning and about an hour in the evening. Sometimes I put a a guided meditation on in the background. And sometimes I just put some like healing music on in the background I'm really liking Alessa Cara is that her name Uh, Scars to Your Beautiful is one of her songs whatever her name is but I put um, a lot of like that kind of music on in the background and just like sit with it for an hour and if it moves around the body I follow it around the body if a new emotion comes up and comes to my attention then I um, focus on that and sometimes sometimes you want to scream sometimes you want to cry sometimes you want to get up and like dance around and I just go with it I love that. I also love that our our voices have power. You know, I think that a lot of the times we forget the use of how um, expressing your voice and tones and moans allows you to get the energy moving. Um, And that's something that I do quite often when I'm walking around the house. It's just if I'm feeling something, I allow myself to just be vocal about it without holding it in. You know what I mean? And I think that's what you're saying as well is you're you're shifting your energies through crying, through yelling, through screaming. You know what I mean? There's that there's a shift that's happening. Yeah. The two two most important things are sounds and breathing and yep. sometimes shaking out your body. Yep. Amazing. Um, if you could sum up your mental well-being journey in one word without any shame, what would that be? Um 
uphill. It's always uphill. In the long run, it's always uphill. (laughs) I love it. And then lastly, as you leave every episode, what are the three biggest lessons you've learned in your life? These can be words, feelings, saying, stories, seriously, whatever authentically comes to mind. No right or wrong answer. I would say that time is precious and not in a cliche way, but in in reference to everything I've said, um, that you are more than your body and that Mm. like what you look like doesn't matter at all. And probably to tie in with the first one, that aging is a privilege that like we focus on like wrinkles and all of those things, but not everyone gets the chance to um, age. And we have this illusion that we're all um, given 90 years at least for granted. But I mean, all of this so young that I was like, unfortunately I had the, um, unpleasant experience of watching a lot of people not survive at the same age as I was because obviously I was in children ICUs I was watching one-year-olds die and three-year-olds die and um, some people who never even had the chance to leave hospitals so if you Mm -hmm. have that chance to be outside and live your life even if we're in a pandemic you (laughs) have an opportunity to change anything you want about your life it's only when your life is over that you don't have the chance to change Oh, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for sharing oh, this everything, so your vulnerability, your insight, but most importantly, your story and for allowing us to share it on here um, is a true, true honor. So thank you. And if anybody is looking to connect with this gorgeous woman, Michelle, once more, you can head over to all of her social platforms, which is Scarred Not Scared. And remember to please check out her podcast, In All Honesty, which is available on all podcast platforms. If you're looking to continue the conversation around living an unapologetically authentic lifestyle, then this podcast is just for you. Our goal is to build a community in which you feel empowered to celebrate you by hearing empowering stories of ownership to self. To always remember to leave with the three M's, mindfulness, movement, and mental engagement. You've got this, and we're here to support you along the way. So be sure to subscribe and download so you don't miss an episode. It's okay to not be okay in your journey to become grounded in the power of you. Now, some of the topics we discussed today may have been triggering. If you are in need to speak to a crisis counselor, please text home to 741-741 or head over to activeminds.org slash resources for curated resources ready to hear from you. This has been a Stage 29 podcast production. The podcast is executive produced by Haley Hasselhoff, Patty Chiano, Laferne Cusack, and Stephanie Kaysen. Our audio editors are Jackson Ruff and Jonathan DeMatty. Callie Kelts is the social media producer. And a special thanks to the rest of our podcast crew, Rwani Horenigay, William Cusack, Lisa Clark, Katie Brown, and Morgan Kaler. This podcast has been produced by Stage 29 Productions for entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice. Do not reflect the opinions of this company, any of its parent companies, affiliates, subsidiaries, promotional sponsors, or advertising agencies. The views expressed by the host and the guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or an entity they...